write a review, and then you can share it with the world in any social media platform. And then your friends see it and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month of every year of every century of every, you get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. Hi there. This is Put a Shrimp on It, the Barbie podcast that is a girl like you. That's not gonna, we're not gonna have an intro on this one because it's not a new one, it's a continuation. Well, just just put that one in and then roll the track. <laughs> and then we can... <laughs> no, and this, then we can... Is the, this is the intro, this is where it ends, God. the music starts. <laughs> I'm a Barbie girl in the Barbie world Life in plastic, it's fantastic You can brush my Hey Jason. Yes, Mina. Remember, remember last episode uh, when we were talking about how the world isn't on fire yet? I, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to speak up, dear. I'm not as young as I used to be. It's been uh, <laughs> 87 years uh, since the last time we recorded an episode, or at least it feels that way. <laughs> so, w- last episode, recorded on Halloween, released January 14th. Mm-hmm. We got through the first less than 15 minutes of the uh, of the movie. Mm-hmm. So by that logic, this movie is an hour and a half long. It's going to take us like 10 episodes. Five more <laughs> five more episodes to finish Barbie as the princess and the Even popper. longer, even longer cuz we're going to spend at least like twice the amount of time uh, that we usually spend talking about the songs. Just just the songs. Just, well, you're not wrong, Jason. <laughs> we're going to go lyric by lyric. You're not wrong. So where we where we left off, Annalise had just Wait, uh, identified some. Stop. Go ahead. I forgot to read the Tumblr message. Oh, <gasps> you're right. Do you have it, Jason? I'm gonna open it right now. Oh, I'm I'm gonna beat you, bud. I'm gonna beat you. You're not gonna do that. Hey guys, just started episode four. <laughs> hey guys, just starting listening to episode four. I love your podcast so much. I only listen to crime-related podcasts and mental health ones, but yours combines perfectly cute silliness and established facts that is just so refreshing and fun to listen to. Mina, your laugh is life, and your name is so cool. It reminds me of Dracula. Keep up the good work, guys. Can't wait for the next episodes. Jason, I guess I see you in class. Randiriel 13. So when I first... On okay, Tumblr. so that message is from one of my classmates in uni. Her name is Christine, and she's very cool. And uh, That's such a cool she, name. <laughs> you both think each other's names are cool. Well, see, okay, hers... Like, mine reminds her of Dracula because of Mina Harker, but hers reminds me of the Phantom of the Opera. Like, they're both very goth names. I think she will appreciate that. 
hopefully she'll start her own podcast one day. I don't know about what. But she <gasps> what she Jason. she kind of talking about starting a podcast about like paleontology or paleontology. Do it. <gasps> Jason. Oh my goodness, you need to do that. I she, it's her podcast. I I'm not a I'm not a bone doctor or whatever. An old thing, a fossil <laughs> doctor. I'm not one of those. Yeah, you're just a rock doctor. Yeah, exactly. I'm a rock doctor. And she's kind of a rock doctor, but mostly a fossil doctor. Anyway. Jason, aren't fossils just, like, accumulated sediments? I mean, kind of. They're not actually bones, bud. I mean, they were bones at one point. And if they have been very well preserved, they kind of still are. But most fossils are just rocks that have accumulated in the crevices left by by bones. Well, yeah. There's lots of different kinds, but yeah, kind of. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Christine, for that message. I'm very glad that yeah! I was an afterthought to that message. Like, yeah, Jason, I guess you exist too. Screw you. You <laughs> suck. I'm kidding. <laughs> and I love you too. But yeah, that was a nice message. Yeah, it's very, yeah. It, it just makes my day. And speaking of Barbie and Dracula. Wait, what? Hang on. Um, what, what transition is this? Okay. So let me let me read to you the description. Well, she says, long and drawn out, and from the glint in her eyes, he can tell this is some kind of inner joke kept from him. I've been a diplomat and a race car driver and a chef and an astronaut and a veterinarian. An astronaut, he repeats dryly. He wants to call her on her lie, but but how strange. There's no indication of a lie. No rise in temperature, no quickening of her pulse, no change to her eyes, nothing. She laughs. You don't know the half of it. So... It's a Barbie Dracula crossover fic. What? I'm not gonna spoil it. It's called La Petite Mort, and it's by Howling Moonrise on AO3. Uh, it's tagged Crack Treated Seriously. It's really good. I'm not even kidding. Like, it's a really good I fic. I wanna read that. It's like a little under 4K, so it's like a really nice one shot. You should you should go read it. Um, I'll link it to you on Discord, actually, but it's a really good fic. I'm not even I'll kidding. I'll put it in the description. That sounds amazing. <laughs> is, is Barbie Dracula or is Barbie talking to no. Dracula? No. Barbie's talking to Dracula. I see. And then kills him because she's better than him. It's a really good fic. I did because I own barbieao3feed.tumblr.com. I reblogged the automatic RSS feed update from barbieao3feed.tumblr.com to shrimponit.tumblr.com. So it's on our blog um, if you want to go through our fanfic tag. Wait, you have you have been posting a lot of stuff from the barbieao3 feed blog on our blog. <laughs> have you also been using the barbieao3 feed Tumblr blog to promote your fix in conjunction with other fix you find that mm, pertain no. to your interests? No. So the Barbie AO3 feed is an automatically updating feed that congregates all fix uploaded to Barbie All Media Types in on AO3. I see. So sometimes it does catch my fix, sure, and put them on Tumblr, but it's it's mostly other people's fix. And I just so happen to reblog the times <laughs> when well, it I catches mean, my fix. I reblog SAFs too. I reblog lots of them. Yes, but very specifically my own. <laughs> 
look, somebody else could have camped the Barbie AO3 feed tumbler, and it was me, okay? <laughs> they could have used it for their own nefarious purposes if they wanted to. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, no judgment here. I probably would have done the same thing, um, but I didn't. <laughs> if- if you had known AO3 feeds were a thing on Tumblr. Anyway, moving moving past our fan messages and mm-hmm. Dracula fix. I'm not sure when I'm going to... I don't know how this is going to work, Mina. This is the preamble. Yeah, this is the preamble where we just talk nonsense. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the movie that it's well, going to take us 10 years to finish. Actually, before we do... Oh, God. More preamble. Well, Jason, you sent me... A very interesting piece of scholarly literature that I think I we did. should I think we should discuss. Okay, let's do it. I mean, we've got nothing better to do with our lives. Okay. Uh Jason, do you actually have the the paper up right now? Alright, I found it. So it's called Analysis about Politeness in Barbie as the Princess and the Pauper movie. And it's basically like an academic paper on like faces and expressions in faces and stuff like that. Well, this film has a lot of kind of weird facial animation. What was the conclusion of this paper? Like, why? Why did you? Why did you think it was like eye catching? Oh, it wasn't. I just, I just saw an academic paper specifically geared at Barbie Princess and the Pauper, and I was like, why did someone write this? I don't understand. Of all the things. Well, Jason, there seems to actually be a pretty healthy scholarly c- discussion surrounding Barbie as the Princess and the Pauper. Yeah, because when you were like, should I look up? my university's database on Barbie, Princess and the Pauper stuff, you were like, oh, look, look, I found everything. <laughs> Jason, does your school use Open Athens or like Shibboleth? Oh, I don't know. Probably. I haven't bothered to bother with that. Oh, okay. I bet you it probably does. Like you probably have a similar database. I mean, like the university you go to is one of the biggest in the country, right? Y- yeah. Yeah, it is. But like we do have like research websites that we use. But I haven't mm-hmm. used them because I've never done any research on anything. Aren't you a fourth year? Yeah, but like that doesn't mean I have to do research yet. I mean, my dissertation or whatever, that's going to happen at some point, but not yet. I have had to take more than one English lecture on like researching literature. Well, Mina, sucks to be you. <laughs> Okay, um, so one of the ones that I found, one of the papers that I found mm-hmm. was Barbie and the Straight-to-DVD Movie, Pink Post-Feminist Pedagogy by Karen Orr-Varid and Christelle Maisignot. So one of her subheadings, Barbie's success in the straight-to-DVD market, I would like to read. The first Barbie movies aired on U.S. television in 1987 as a two-part special, Barbie and the Rockers, Out of This World, and Barbie and the Sensations, Rockin' Back to Earth. The two 30-minute shows were based on Mattel's rock and roll line of dolls on shelves at the time. Both were subsequently released for home video in 1990, the year in which the U.S. Children's Television Act became law, aiming to do away with TV's so-called program-length commercials. PLCs. Broadcast shows that featured toys as characters or were based on toy franchises operating effectively as 30-minute commercials. Established in the period between 1984, when the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, relaxed regulations that prohibited such programming, and 1990, when the FCC re-regulated children's programming, the format migrated to video and secured a safe market through home video sales and rentals. Despite being prohibited on broadcast television, the same properties were produced for straight-to-video market. 
So we've discussed before Barbie and the Rockers very briefly, I think in either the pilot or the Nutcracker episode, Mm -hmm. because our premise is Barbie movies made after the year 2001. Mm -hmm. Barbie and the Rockers came out in the 80s and the 90s. But yes, so... A lot of these papers are really interesting with regards to their their like subject material and their lengths. Like this paper, Barbie and the Straight to DVD movie is 18 pages and I found a thesis titled Figures of Speech by Comparison in the Soundtrack of Barbie as the Princess and the Popper. This is somebody's like English literature thesis. It is 102 pages. How much can you write in one paper about Barbie movies? It's kind of amazing, right? Like, it's sort of astonishing how how much this person wrote about Barbie as the Princess and the Popper. Like, I can only I can only dream to write this much now this is like academic format so it is like double spaced with really wide margins so i'm wondering what the word count would actually be i would still think that it would be a very daunting read it's sizable some other really interesting pieces were lisa orr's difference that is actually sameness mass reproduced barbie joins the princess convergence which is a comparison between the Disney princess lineup from the mid-2000s to now and then the Barbie releases. So it's sort of like the Disney princesses as the old guard, as the more traditionally feminine, and then the Barbie movies as like cool and hip and new. It also discusses how in that comparison it sort of becomes a Coke-Pepsi debate because to somebody who's never tasted them before, Coke and Pepsi taste very similar. So, like, Barbie and Disney princesses, though they pretend to be very different and very, very disparate, they are actually very much the same in their core underlying ideologies. And I thought that was really, it was a really interesting read. It's 22 pages. Did you just scan through them? Like like in The Matrix, those people that looked at code and were like, <laughs> oh, this is happening, that is happening. You just scan through academic papers and were like, 15 minutes before we record, I'm going to read everything. Well... <laughs> Um, so there's another one that's a it's a literature review on the Prince and the Pauper in film, and it's called Miles to Go: The Prince and the Pauper in Film and Television by Hugh H. Davis. And it <laughs> there's a wonderful little preamble in uh, this paper. A few years ago, I overheard two students discussing the DVD Barbie: The Princess and the Pop Star 2012 with hubris. One student pronounced, "That's just a ripoff of The Princess and the Pauper." Her peer incredulously replied. How is a pop star like a popper? In microcosm, this conversation represents the legacy of the Prince and the Popper, 1881. Like, holy crap! <laughs> oh my god! Well, I love I it. I guess academics are so not much. humorless at all, and they are in fact very, very funny. I just, yeah, no, it's amazing. I'm going to link the DOIs of these papers in the description of the episode, so if anybody wants to read them, you can generally get access to these. Um, This one was published on Project Muse, DVD, straight to DVD movie, um, was published by Taylor and Francis. So you can generally get access to these databases using university accounts through Shibboleth or Open Athens. Mm. So we're going to we're going to post the ISS. I think you mean I'm going to post them because like usually I do the description stuff and you just send me the links. Okay, Jason is going to put them in the thing. But I was just, you know, I was trying to tell Jason to do it. It's kind of like doing it, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, 
There was also one, there was also a study that had keyword Barbie that was published by the University of Toronto, but it was about how Barbie dolls affect the self-perceptions of young women. And so they were doing a study with all of the new uh, body styles of the dolls. So like the curvy and the tall and the petite and the classic. Mm. Um, and that was published by the University of Toronto. It was a study out of my university. Uh-huh, alumni. <laughs> okay, but yes, so let's get back to the movie. Yeah, so we stopped with Annalise talking to Julian about yes. marriage. About marriage. <sighs> so happy. Free to do whatever they want. What do you think King Dominic will be like? Now, so Jason, I went a little crazy with my I'm analysis sorry, you? Here. You went a little crazy? <laughs> you? My friend Mina went a little crazy? You? <laughs> no. You would not. Okay, so as Julian walks onto the balcony to join Annalise, and she's like watching the two young girls playing in the garden, under this scene, the melody of If You Love Me For Me is playing and it's played as a duet on the flute and the cello so jason am i allowed to do like a bit of amateur lit analysis on this because i'm really All excited right, go about ahead this. i'll allow it okay <laughs> so so jason okay if i say there's a boy and a girl in a scene and there's also a flute and a cello in the music what would you say i would say the boy is the cello and the girl's the flute Okay, so that's a valid analysis, but what I actually posit is that the flute and the cello represent the two sides of Annalise's struggle with her attraction and love for Julian. So the flute is like really light and airy over the strings, and it plays the unadulterated melody of If You Love Me For Me. So it has the lyrics of the song. And so it sings Once Alas, and the cello follows it with an ascending melody. And so it's sort of representing the line, so happy, that Annalise says about the girls, right? So it's, it's very uplifting. So happy, once alas. And then when the flute plays Met a Lad, Annalise says, free to do whatever they want. And the cello descends back down. And so it's like she's she's uplifted by the innocence of these children, but immediately she's sort of crushed back down by her duty, right? Oh, I see. And so in meeting Julian, the lad, right, she can never be free like the young girls that she's watching in the garden. And so the cello dies right there, which like is sort of representative of Annalise like cutting off her desire for the relationship like she knows she has to let it die or she won't be able to like do her duty well that's very interesting mina that's a very interesting piece of analysis yeah (laughs) i'm very proud of you for for noticing that (laughs) but yeah no i just i went a little bit insane right there it's just it's such a small little piece of it you know what i mean but like it's so it's so fraught right i have noticed something similar in the movie that is not musical in nature Uh, it's a piece of dialogue Uh but it's much later in the movie so we might not even get to it today (laughs) i have written down here annalise is looking at two creepy children from her balcony so (laughs) well yeah i mean um it's it's the i think it's the fox from swan lake Mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, it's a recolored, you know, it's 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 the mm. children that have been yeah. in these movies since mm-hmm. Nutcracker. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they really do recycle models in that company. Rainmaker or mainframe rather. Rain, they're they're yeah. called mainframe now. But yeah, so so Annalise is like so happy, free to do whatever they want. And there's no music under this part here. As Annalise and Julian are talking about Dominic, there's no music under it. But then, okay, I have two things to say about uh, when when Julian says, apparently he's a lover of music. He plays three different instruments, the dulcimer, the trumpet, and the piano. So <laughs> I said that I had something to say about this in the last episode. We don't find out exactly when the movie is set, but The Prince and the Pauper is set in mm-hmm. 1537, which is about 200 years before the invention of the modern pianoforte which is what we call a piano nowadays so he would probably be playing like a harpsichord or a clavinet and not a piano as we know it but it messes with the timeline a little bit because like is this movie supposed to be set in the 1700s or is it supposed to be set when the book was set like it's it's a bit of a conundrum because there's a lot of anachronism in the film too right like you can't really pin down a specific Mm. temporal setting And what makes it even worse is the trumpet, because the modern valve trumpet that we think of when we think of a trumpet was invented in the 1830s. Oh, no. That's 19th century. That's close (laughs) to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So, like, when is this movie set? set in a timeless void. (laughs) Dominic could play a horn of some sort that was then called a trumpet, but it's not the same thing as, like, a trumpet Mm. that we know today. Him playing the dulcimer... That is temporally accurate. The dulcimer is a very old instrument. But yeah, so like the minute that they stop talking about Dominic, the music comes back in because Julian tells Annalise, Annalise, you're going to need your cape. And then the music starts back in. Mm. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I just think that whole scene is really interesting musically. Can I share my thoughts about the scene? Yes, please do. Julian starts talking about, you know, Dominic and being like, apparently he's a lover of music. He plays three instruments, the dulcimer, the piano, and the trumpet. So he starts, (laughs) he goes into what I like to call stupid teacher mode, where instead of, like, uh, being helpful, he just spouts trivia knowledge that he has, like little factoids that he just... You mean mean info dumping? Info dumping, exactly. You know what you do sometimes when it comes to stuff like music or Barbie movies? Jason? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but but he um he just offers this information to her and he sees that Now, I sort of read it as like him trying to comfort her, right? Yeah, that's what that was we're going to talk yeah. about. So, he's okay. like, "Oh, you like music and he likes music, so maybe, you know, you'll get along, you know. You'll have something to talk about at least. You'll have yeah. something in common." But he sees that she is still she's not really paying attention to that. She's not mm-hmm. really like oh my god, he plays the dulcimer, swoon, <laughs> like that. <laughs> so he senses that she's very much nervous and uh, frustrated and upset. And he's like, he doesn't exactly look in the distance. I don't think the animation quality was at that point yet. But no, they do try to make him have a thoughtful look in the distance of like, hey, yeah. maybe I should actually do something helpful instead of talk about musical instruments and he's like (laughs) you're gonna need your cape because we're going outside so you can enjoy yourself and feel better about the prospect of pending marital doom Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah that's what i had to narratively that's what i had to say about the scene very nice okay but yes so the scene moves on we get a panning shot of the village surrounding the castle. And it shows a very well-populated street. Like, the models don't look great, but there are sure are a mm-hmm. lot of them. 
Now, in the music here, there's actually a bit of a reprise of the If You Love Me For Me theme on the violin. This time it's been simplified to just four notes. So you can kind of pick it out if you're listening for it. Oh, that's it. interesting. Yeah. And then when Julian says, there's nothing like some fresh air and a change of scenery, the motif playing under that line corresponds with the lyric, could I be the one you're seeking? Oh, oh that's very interesting. And then will I be the one you choose? is under, I wish it were that simple. Come on, Serafina. So, so like, isn't that kind of interesting? It's like, very interesting. There's a there's a musical conversation ha- like happening there that's, like, really complex underneath the dialogue. Exactly. I, Mina, you just, uh-huh. you just verbalized what I was thinking. <laughs> I was going to say it's like a second poem that you cannot hear. Yeah, well, I mean, you, can <laughs> you can't hear, hear it. <laughs> You can hear it, but you know, you can't hear it. Yeah, exactly. I know. Um, um, I love and then, at the same time. <laughs> the theme of evil yeah. comes back here when we see Midas has like stone away under the carriage and is spying on Annalise and Julian. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned this to you already, but the theme of evil, it's played on the bassoon. And to me, it's kind of very vaguely reminiscent of the grandfather's theme from Peter and the Wolf. Oh, yeah, yeah, you sent that, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. So if you could put the Peter and the Wolf music right here, that I would be am. great. done it (laughs) but yeah so the the strings from if you love me for me kind of continue under this whole section here but the bassoon sneaks in whenever we see a shot of midas Mm. i think it's a really great way to start introducing elements of like symphonic poetry to children oh my god that is so complex (laughs) mina stop having all these like interesting concepts enter my brain i just want to talk about you know stupid (laughs) garbage and you're like actually this movie is quite educational it it starts to introduce (laughs) the concept of symphonic uh you know dialogue and uh poetry poetry (laughs) for children they're like oh music can tell you things about the character without even you realizing you're being told the things god here's the thing this is a trash garbage podcast can you just lower (laughs) your quality levels to match my own i'm kidding i tried to real i did a real i worked really hard on this episode actually i can see that it's very it 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 shows i mean it's a good movie but like wow i do you know what my notes are what are your notes okay Midas exclamation mark. The word Midas is underlined. And then gold exclamation mark. (laughs) And then next to that, obsession with the gold tooth exclamation mark. So that's how complex my thought process is. All I have to point out in this scene is that they step out of a very, very decorative, very Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how to describe it. Fancy, very fancy carriage. And mm-hmm. they're like, nobody knows who I am Don't here. Don't be suspicious. Don't be exactly. suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> exactly. So she's like, nobody knows who I am here. And I'm like, I very much doubt that, Annalise. Because like, you just stepped out of... Yeah, you get immediately recognized. Yeah, you just... Ugh. I mean, when Erica and she talk, Erica's like, you have the same name as the princess. And she's like, well, I am. And she's like, oh, I didn't realize. And I'm like, you didn't... How do you <laughs> yeah. not know what she looks like? Um, so Julian, I'm going back to the little bit at the carriage. Mm-hmm. A perfect example of Rosa Centifolia, he says. 
handing it to Annalise. Now, according to Kate Greenway's book, Language of the Flowers, Rosa Centifolia, the hundred-petaled rose, is said to represent pride, but it is also sometimes known as the cabbage rose due to its large blooms, and when it is given this name, it is the ambassador of love. Aww. So I just thought that would be cute to, you know, have in there. I just want to talk about how they walk around the city, and then Annalise asks, so which one was your house? And Julian is like, oh, yeah, it's more of a room, really. We couldn't afford a house. And then Annalise is like, oh, I didn't mean. And then Julian's like, I know. So we get a small glimpse of like economic disparity between people and Annalise being aware that, oh, maybe, you know, my privileged butt shouldn't like <laughs> say or do things that force people to reveal their financial situation. Oh, Jason, we're going to we're going to talk more about. Annalise and the economic disparities. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, this is just a general issue I have with this movie, but the economic disparity thing, it's more like a backdrop, an occasional like way of raising the stakes and just reminding us. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, but it's not really examined under a lens of, oh, why does poverty exist when, you know, they have an entire castle with golden chandeliers and golden flower vases? Like, what are the dynamics? Why mm-hmm. why do the people love their royalty when their royalty is living large and the people are starving in the streets? I was talking about this a little bit last time, but this film really does sort of believe in the divine right of kings. Like, it, it never questions why some people are impoverished. It sort of acts under the assumption that certain people should or intrinsically are impoverished Mm -hmm. which is questionable at best i mean the book did the same thing so i guess well yeah it is a faithful adaptation (laughs) but yeah can i are we gonna move on no i have more things to say hang on so uh they walk they walk they walk and julian is being like very nice very understanding very caring guy like yeah i know you're rich but i still love you kind of thing and um Mm. they go to this flower vendor where you know they do the whole roses and defolia thing and all the flowers are like lego flowers they're mush they're like mush so poorly rendered it's like all the petals are 2d textures on a plane Mm -hmm. except for the one that julian picks out and the thing is it's called rosa centifolia because as you said it has many 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 petals yeah that's not a rosa centifolia what he picks up it's not it's um that one is a much more common varietal of rose but it's not rosa Mm -hmm. centifolia they did not they did not in the film render a rose because i would presume that either the model would be too complicated and take too long to make or because they just did not have the resources to render such a complex shape in the movie without i don't know all the computers catching fire or something like that it was either for time (laughs) or for money or because they couldn't technically accomplish this mm-hmm. the last thing i want to say is uh rosa centifolia it's called centifolia uh-huh. but it doesn't have a hundred petals but it has a lot of them i know my no- my nonna used to grow rosa centifolia, oh is actually. that how you knew that you can make tea from it and jam yeah oh my god that's very cool it is read uh Mina's fake on ao3 it's linked in the previous episode make fun of her in oh, the comments no. uh except don't because then i'll come onto your house and no. kill you <laughs> Um, I'll find you in real life. Yeah, I know. It's a very interesting (laughs) flower. It was developed by Dutch rose breeders uh, between the 17th Mm -hmm. and 19th century. We don't, or earlier, we don't exactly know when they made it 
and it hasn't been fully mm-hmm. documented uh historic it doesn't have a very fully documented a very well documented history and it hasn't been very mm-hmm. well investigated this is all from the wikipedia article i read i didn't <laughs> i didn't really look very hard at the rest of the sources cited in the article but i trust wikipedia to not lie to me about rose breeds <laughs> So if any academic herbologists are listening to this episode for... Herbologists. Is that not what they call them? Horticulturalists. Okay. If any plant doctors are listening to this, <laughs> is herbologist a Harry Potter thing? It is a Harry Potter thing. I don't know how you did that, I don't know Jason. either. Okay. So if any plant doctors are listening, go ahead and research Rosa Centifolia because apparently not many people have. So go do that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then, you know, Annalise is like, mm, that smells delicious. And they see a vendor that sells something and Julian mm-hmm. goes get her something. So what were you going to say about that? I'll be right back, he mm-hmm. says. So as he walks off, Annalise notices a house being boarded up and a family being forced to leave their homes. Now, the motif that plays here is from Free. And it's specifically the motif associated with the lyric, I close my eyes and feel myself fly a thousand miles away. I could take flight, but would it be right? My conscience tells me stay. And it's played on the oboe. Is it not played on a minor key as well? It is played on a minor key, Oh my god, I'm learning things. Uh, (laughs) So the music here is really closely associated with Annalise and her emotional state and Annalise and her relationship to Julian. So right here, she's refocusing from her relationship to Julian to her duty as a princess, her conscience tells her stay, right? Oh, that's a very good connection. I hadn't thought about it that way. And so she, in seeing these people being forced to leave their homes, she again refocuses and understands that like her marriage has to happen so this won't happen to more people. And so like as the motif fades out, uh, we hear we start to hear the beginning of Written in Your Heart, hmm. which is Erica's first song in the film. Jason, roll the track! (laughs) (laughs) Rolling! When your spirit rides on the winds of hope, you'll find your wings. Yeah, Erica has a song. I've written down here, Erica is a bard and Annalise is an NPC. I mean, she is. She gets kidnapped. She gets rescued. I feel like this whole thing is just Erica's background, like origin story. Uh huh. I think Annalise would work well as an artificer. But has she ever made anything? Well, no, but I think that her interest in horticulture and in geology would go well with like a mad scientist. Okay, but vibe. here's the question Would she be an alchemist? Would she be a. Oh! A. Hmm. What's it called? I think alchemist. Like Armor smith, battlesmith, and then there's another one that's about like cannons and guns and stuff. I think definitely alchemist. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Because it's perfect. Because fool's gold, right? Because like, oh. like alchemy. Oh, oh that makes sense. Oh, oh that makes so much sense. We're here. We're, we we got here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> put a shrimp on it. D and D campaign about Barbies. Uh, coming right up. Never. <laughs> but yes. So, do you have anything to say about Erica's song before we move on? Erica's singing, and I noticed that as she's singing, we can hear like instruments playing that aren't playing. Yeah, there's like a yeah, fun little aren't guitar playing in the scene. So I'm like. I didn't notice that the first two times I watched it. And the third time I was like, is there a guitar playing somewhere in the background? There's a guitar playing. And then when she's not singing, there's a clarinet yeah, I meant like playing. in the scene. 
Yeah, because oh, it sounded no, no. like the There's guitar was fading it. in, and there was like some minstrel next to her that was playing a guitar. And then I thought I started laughing because I was like, so she's just singing a song by herself with no accompanying melody, which I guess people do just in general. It is a little strange, though. It is a little strange. Yeah, it was funny to imagine her just you know without the music accompaniment making you know the singing so much better. Anyway, her Wolfie is mm-hmm. holding up a cup that people throw change to, mm-hmm. and um. The the facial expressions when Erica is singing, I think, are well made, considering considering yeah. the technology at the time. I think they put a lot of effort there. I think they did. I think that I think that they put a lot of effort into this whole section of the film because this is what a lot of the trailers <laughs> were were using for the clips. Yeah, and it's also it's not the first time we're introduced to Erica because we we have the starting song, yeah. but it's like the first mm-hmm. time we see her as you know what she would want to be like a singer yes and th- they're trying to show like how passionate she is about you know the music she's singing how much she feels the music as she's singing it by you know changing her expression at, at least i'm assuming and um then madame carp shows up now the transcript on the wiki says that madame carp is saying caroling but she's saying here again <laughs> I mean, the wiki is not always reliable, Mina. The wiki is big, big wrong. wrong. That's f- <laughs> well. Why didn't you correct them? I could do that, couldn't I? You could. Now, musically, what happens right here is the bassoon comes back. The theme of evil returns, and uh, it dips into one of the really low registers on the bassoon. Again, this film has a lot of very direct musical metaphors going on so like the bassoon dips low because you know madame carp is morally low right Mm, mm. but yes so madame carp steals erica's money oh can i talk about the interaction here for a second yes so madame carp comes in and you know is like that's my money because you still owe me your debt and Mm -hmm. the second erica realizes madame carp is there she like she has an expression of like oh no and then instantly her eyes shift down low to Wolfie yeah. and the money because she's like, mm-hmm. she's here. She's going to take my money because she thinks mm-hmm. she is owed my money and I'm not going to have any money today. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that she instantly was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, my eyes darting to the money. Good animation. When people feel threatened, like they look to the most important thing first, right? And mm-hmm. as we have learned from Arthur Conan Doyle's works. <laughs> Well, it's like when you feel nervous, you pat the the pocket your wallet's in, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they steal it anyway because they're like, oh, that's the pocket (laughs) that the wallet's in. Again, I'm going back to the music here, but there's, I want to say it's like a Celeste or maybe like a xylophone that's happening here while Madame Carp speaks. But then as she leaves, the free motif comes back. The the I close my eyes motif. Mm Mm-hmm. And here, I was sort of reading it as the representation of, like, what is keeping Erica trapped. You know what I mean? So, Madame Carp's iron grip on her finances is sort of what's keeping her from her freedom, right? And so, this is her sort of being forced to reconcile that, right? Isn't that the same scene where Annalise steps in and talks to Erica? It is. So, could it be just uh, a sort of, like... The Jason? two characters. Jason, I'm getting there. Okay. Jason. Okay. Go on. <laughs> so Annalise enters and she says, what a beautiful song. And then Free's minor theme is replaced by a really fun, like soaring and triumphant fanfare on the brass. And this time it's to the lyric, I'd never think that it was so. 
from I'm a Girl Like You. Oh. So again, there's some really interesting musical stuff going on here. It, like I think this film is such a like a beautiful love letter to the use of leitmotif. Uh, like a young person analyzing the music from this film can have so such a good time. You know what I mean? Like there's so it's such it's such a rich vein. But not if you're old. If you're young, you can have fun. What? But if you're old... No, but Jason, Jason, what, what I'm saying is, like, an older musician would probably write this film off as, you know, being for kids. It's crap. You know what I mean? Okay, so here's a question. When you are 50, do you think... I mean, that's middle-aged, but, you know, when you are 50, do you think you will be like, <laughs> I hate Barbie films because they're for kids? No, God, no. Well, there you God, go. No. Do you think but... all those academics <laughs> that wrote research papers on Princess and the Pauper did it because they hated it so much because it was for kids? One of them does mention in their writing that they were coerced into doing it and that their child made them do a research paper (laughs) well kudos on that kid is all i'm saying but yes so again there's a fanfare to the lyric i'd never think that it was so and so it's sort of this wonderful realization right where annalise and erica are sort of seeing each other and they're looking into this mirror it like at each other you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. the use of i'd never think that it was so is really apt in this part right because they both take a moment of disbelief when they're looking at each other and they they have to like take a second to like you know figure it out yeah can i (laughs) can i say something about the same scene yes go ahead go ahead when annalise comes in and like puts a coin in the now empty cup and says what a beautiful song i'm just thinking she gives erica a single coin but annalise is a princess and her kingdom might currently not be very wealthy but if she marries she could give erica everything she could give her a home she could give her a job a new life she could give her enough money to pay off her debt or she could just tell madame Carp to write off her debt or whatever and she just is like oh here's a single coin and later on she's like you should definitely come sing at the palace sometime and i'm just thinking annalise is kind of a jerk is kind of naive about some things. I think she's written as being very book smart, but not very street smart. Yeah. And I think that that's pretty accurate to the novel as well. Yeah. Annalise, she doesn't lack nuance, but she does lack some level of subterfuge. You know what I mean? She needs to read more marks. <laughs> she needs to watch more leftists on YouTube. She wa- she needs to watch more bread too. <laughs> she, needs, she needs a good dose of bread too. <laughs> I've also written down some stuff about, you know, Madame Carp's attitude towards uh-huh. Erica, how she threatens her and robs her of her money because she doesn't really want mm-hmm. her debt to be repaid. That's not her goal here. She just wants to exploit yeah. Erica for her unpaid labor so she can have yeah. a seamstress for however many years or decades so that she doesn't have to, like, pay for someone to work for her. She can just, you know, no, exploit her workforce. So... You know, the kingdom really needs to have a good case of, you know, das Kapitol. Is that how Marx... Is that... <laughs> Capital. Capital. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just... Um, I think this movie, it shows exploitation of the workforce. It doesn't really address everyone's, yeah. you know, role in that. How Annalise is kind of like, through her passiveness, through her not really doing anything about it, not really examining things more closely, she's kind of like also a part of the exploitation because she literally i mean jason we have to remember that mattel as a company does use exploitative labor like 
internationally. I you know, know what I mean? Like, yeah. they outsource their production to, you know, Asia and Africa. And, like, a film in which they have, you know, an uprising of the exploited labor force, it would be really insanely disingenuous. And I think... You know, that's that's one of the reasons they couldn't explore it is because if Mattel is exploring those themes, then they have to relocate their labor to, you know, well, they have to either like relocate their labor or they have to pay the workers internationally. Well, Mina, it sure sounds like maybe Mattel (laughs) should pay their workers fair wages and relocate their labor so that, you know. They're not doing things that are unethical, whether, you know, directly or indirectly. It sure sounds like they need to change some things. It sure does. It sure does, Jason. But yes, so Annalise and Erica, they have their first in-person conversation. Mm -hmm. I've written down here IRL same face syndrome. (laughs) You know, like in Overwatch or Disney princesses (laughs) having the same face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. I like that. But yeah, so Annalise, you have the same name as the princess. Well... She's like nervously sweating, like, uh, you know. (laughs) And so we get, what is this? The the third song in the movie? The fourth song? We got three. We got, how can I I refuse? refuse? I think it's the third song. We got written in your heart. It's the fourth song. written in your heart is later. It, It doesn't happen yet. No, this is, no, that's written in your heart reprise. Oh, Okay, that makes sense. Well, yeah, but then it's not a song because there's yes. no singing. What are you talking about? Okay, so written in your heart <laughs> is... There's written in your heart here and then there's written in your oh, heart you're in the finale right. when it's a, it's the chorus after the wedding. What are you talking about, Shut Jason? up. I'm a dumb-dumb. <laughs> there should be a new word. That's not himbo, but it's like something else because himbo means like a strong, like a physically strong but vacuous man. And I'm not a physically strong one, but I'm very vacuous. You could just use the word vacuous. Vac- okay, f- fine. But yes, so we get our fourth song in the movie, Girl Like You. I'm rolling the clip. I'm just like you. I think that's true. You're just like me. Yes, I can see. We take responsibility. We carry through. We carry through. Do what we need to do. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> I really like Erica's voice in this song and general in dialogue. I love Erica's voice. Oh my goodness. It's still the same. Um, oh god, what's her name? I know. What's the name of the voice actor? I've forgotten about it. Oh, Kelly Sheridan? Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Mina. I have Alzheimer's um, due to isolation. It's Julie Stevens. Julie Stevens does the Erica singing yeah. voice. So Julie Stevens does the singing voice and the speaking voice is just... You know, it's Kelly Sheridan in yeah, a way. Kelly Sheridan in a way, basically, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, she's just doing like a deeper inflection of her voice, and I think it really—it's yes. very good. I I really like it. Unless, of course, Kelly Sheridan throughout all this time has been doing a, a higher inflection, higher pitch, and her real voice sounds more like Erica's. Yeah, um, I find that her Barbie voice is—it's a little more nasal. It's a little more up here. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Whereas her Erica voice does come back down a to little bit to the chest. Yeah. But yeah, so in this piece, Erica is detailing her life as an indentured servant to Madame Carp, and Annalise, in turn, is detailing her sort of stress leading up to her nuptials, Mm -hmm. and then the two of them are, like, finding solidarity in each other's experiences. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, we should also mention that there's a really beautiful animatic on YouTube. There are... 
there's okay we're gonna link it in the description <laughs> but oh my goodness this animatic it's so beautiful annalise's expressions are so wonderful and erica's like physical acting is just like oh my goodness this person like really knows what they're about and oh my gosh it's so good <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Before you talk about the music, I just want to point out that as they're singing, uh, mid-song butterflies start circling them. They're like the blue and pink butterflies. I'm going to talk about the butterflies. I just wanted to point out that Annalise gets the blue butterfly and Erica gets the pink butterfly. But, you know, the blue butterfly symbolizes Erica and the pink butterfly symbolizes Annalise. So they get get opposite butterflies. They get each other's butterflies to symbolize that. Oh. It's the foreshadowing. It's that it's that sweet, sweet Barbie movie foreshadowing. That, and also it's to symbolize that they are the same person, despite, you know, mm-hmm. you know, unity in diversity, stuff like that. Like our differences bring us together and also that they're meeting for the first mm-hmm. time. That they're they're just learning about each other. And like they can see the differences mm-hmm. between them, but they can also see the similarities. What I what I really love about this piece is the harmonies. Do they harmonize in thirds? <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for You're that, welcome. Jason. No, so it's a lot of unison for the separated parts. So it's like, I'm just like... But then when they're singing together, they get these really lovely harmonic lines where Erica takes the alto and Annalise takes the soprano. And I think it's a really beautiful representation of their characters as well, because Erica is forced to be more grounded. She is grounding the chords in the song, but she's also as a character, because of her station, she's forced to sort of grapple with the realities of her life. Mm hmm more than Annalise, who is allowed to be, you know, she's noble, she's higher, Mm. right? And so she's sort of able to live above the struggle, right, that most of the people in her her kingdom experience. Man, that's such a good analysis. I'm never going to stop saying (laughs) it because I never, I would never notice those things. So, wow, that's very smart. I wonder, man, I just, ugh. I have a heavy appreciation both for you for perceiving this, but also for the musicians for, <laughs> you know, thinking about this while they were composing yeah. the music. Like, I mean, I know I bagged on Arnie Roth a lot in Rapunzel and Swan Lake's episodes, but his conducting of the score here, along with the lyricists, they did a really wonderful job of executing this vision. And also the people who wrote the music and the lyrics who were like, I said the lyricists, because Rob, Rob Hudnut and what's her name? Megan Cavallari. Thank you, Megan Cavallari. We're doing the lyrics for this one. And Amy Powers as well. Yeah, thank you, Amy Powers. I forgot her name. See, I remember Rob Hudnut because I made a joke about it in the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the I Am A Girl Like You motif, as I've already said, it, it does recur throughout the score. If you're watching the film, really keep an ear out for like the melodies from this score. Mm. Um, now, at the end of the song, as you were talking about, Jason, we get that shot of the pink and blue butterflies, which I would like to talk about oh for boy. a minute. Go on. Now, I already mentioned last episode how butterflies are like a symbol in Christianity, especially for like the Trinity, but they're actually in a lot of world cultures representative of the human soul. Oh yeah. And so like you were saying, there's sort of unity in diversity, like you were saying, right? They are 
two people who are of one soul. Do you want to hear a fun trivia? Yes, I would love to hear a fun trivia. The first time I encountered the quote, unity and diversity is from an English textbook of mine that was like specifically referencing Uh racial diversity through a graphic of a lot of like children of different racial and ethnic backgrounds holding hands in a circle. Aw, that's cute. That's what I think about every time I see (laughs) or hear that or say that. That's really cute, Jason. That's really cute. Yeah. That's it. That's all I had to say. So the colors pink and blue can stand for many things in literature. But what I wanted to keep in mind was the associations from floriography, like I was talking about earlier. Floriography is the language of the flowers. So in floriography, like Kate Greenway's book was mentioning, pink roses tend to represent gentleness, gracefulness, and like other soft, traditionally feminine qualities. And this checks out if we think about Annalise as her name comes from the German name Annalisa, which can be translated as God-given grace. As a princess, Annalise is, uh, she's expected to perform a certain level of institutional femininity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so we can see a lot of that in To Be a Princess, uh, which we'll talk about later. And then the closest thing to a blue rose that we have in nature is a lavender rose, which represents love at first sight as well as enchantment. Because, Because blue roses don't grow naturally when they show up in literature, they often represent impossibility, mystery, and the unattainable. The unattainable here represents you know, both of their goals at this point in the film, right? Mm. Because both of them struggle with attaining their personal wishes while also attempting to fulfill, like, hereditary Mm. goals. Attaining their freedom, yeah. Yeah. You know the entire plot of The Dragon Prince? (laughs) How, like, hereditary history is, like... Jason, I've never actually seen The Dragon Prince. I know that there's, like, a boy king and, like, a hot dad. Okay, so the whole deal is, like... Try and uh, not let history define your actions. So don't like let the okay. misdeeds of the past influence you so that you can like... Don't follow the mistakes of your predecessors. Don't do that. That's bad. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Trying to break free from tradition and all that. Trying to break free from old vendettas and stuff like that. So that's the whole message. Mm-hmm. Also, wait, you haven't seen The Dragon Prince? No, I've never watched it. The animation kind of... I don't know. The first two seasons were, like, really choppy, you know what I mean? Okay, the first season is kind of hard to watch. The second season Mm. gets a bit better, and the third season is really good, so you should watch it. Yeah? Yeah, I think you should. I think you would appreciate it. Okay. Especially the musical themes. But yeah, but yeah, so... So Erica's name literally translates from Italian to Heather, which, (laughs) as well as being a flower... Is also a name for like a bluish shade of purple. A lesbos pigmentation, <laughs> perhaps? A, a sapphic pigment. Uh, but yeah, so like the fact that she is represented by the color blue and the fact that her entire like narrative arc is about her like seeking the unattainable. It's just very interesting, you know? It's mm-hmm. just very interesting. Mm-hmm. Can I say stuff now? Yes. Okay, so. Yes. They look at each other after they're done singing. They're like, we could be twins. And then they mm-hmm. giggle and they put on their hoods from their capes. And I noticed yes. that they probably, the animators probably used two different models for the hair. Because when the mm-hmm. the two characters put on their cloaks, the kind of long hair that they always have kind of disappears as the cloak oh. covers their head. But yep. physically, that wouldn't be possible. And I noticed that when she was in the castle, Erica took off her cloak and her hair was like bunched up. And then five minutes later, it was 
completely free on her like shoulders so they probably had two different models for both characters one with short hair bunched up and one with long hair which is what they usually used otherwise you know the hair would clip mm-hmm. through the fabric quote-unquote of the cape as the cape rose to their head so they probably just very mm-hmm. quickly swapped between the two models during the movement when annalise says what about this birthmark all i could think of was this is a special tool that will help us later <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and um i thought it was very funny obviously that was set up I wondered, because mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, the Divine Right of Kings several times today. Yeah. I wondered if that was another, like, element of, oh, see, that the royals, they get this special birthmark shaped like the a The royal birthmark. Yeah, exactly. Because they're the true, you know, leaders or whatever. And anyone trying mm-hmm. to step in on their territory, well, that's bad because they don't have the birthmark, you know. <laughs> Sorry, my hair was in my face. Um. <laughs> so uh, that wasn't a reaction noise? That wasn't an anime reaction? No, 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 like, no, no, no. <laughs> Anyway. Perfectly pronounced. I'm gonna I'm gonna bop you on the nose. <laughs> so J- but yes. Julian comes in. But Julian Julian returns with the cider. Mm-hmm. As Julian re-enters, the strings come back with him, and uh, it's the beginning of the theme from uh Me for Me again. Mm-hmm. But it cuts off Right when Julian sees Erica and he drops the mugs. Yeah. And I have written down here in all caps, do you want to get ants, Julian? Because that's how (laughs) you get ants. ants. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, you know, Julian sees them and it's like, oh, it's uncanny how similar you look. And then we Mm -hmm. pan away. And fun fact, the bassoon comes back when Midas is back on screen. (laughs) The bassoon. I think the true villain in this movie is the bassoon. The bassoon. Because bad things happen only when it is playing. Now, okay, what I think is really fun here, in this section of the music, in, in the chase scene, you get a lot of the high strings and the flute representing Serafina, and you get the trumpet representing Wolfie as the chase goes on. Mm-hmm. Sorry, okay, go ahead. No, 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 I'm just nodding along. Okay, but yeah, so so the chase goes on, the chase goes on. Erica yells at Wolfie after he runs away. The Baker character model <laughs> is back. <laughs> oh my God, he's never. he's always going to be here, isn't he? I'm pretty sure that the next movie, uh, he's also going to be here. But no, okay, but Fairytopia, he wouldn't have a... He wouldn't have a reason to be in fairy He'd be a fairy. Oh, God. I uh, I don't want to imagine the baking that. fairy. That's weird. So as the chase scene goes on, there's, you know, a lot of visual gags. And then Serafina gets trapped in a little alleyway by Midas. Oh, can I, can I say something about the visual gags? Yes. When Serafina runs over the baker's feet, he, like, fumbles a bit but doesn't fall off. Midas makes him, you know... Fall yeah. yeah, and fall face first into the pie, and there's like a splash effect when the pie hits his face, and then the pie is dented, and then Wolfie jumps on his back while he's on the ground, and there's a second splash effect, but <laughs> the splash effect is disconnected from the pie, like you can tell it's just like a, a, a disjointed splash effect, and you can't really because the first time the pie is dented, the second time it's still the same. Mm-hmm. And the baker's face doesn't really go all the way down to hit the pie. It kind of stops halfway through. Oh my goodness. And it's just an interesting tiny little detail. I didn't notice it the first few times. But yes, so Midas and Serafina have a little bit of a repartee. And then Wolfie comes up behind them to defend her. And mm-hmm. if you listen to the score, the trumpet and the bassoon have a fun little conversation in the music. 
Oh, you sound like such a nerd. Like, they have a fun little <laughs> conversation. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You do. But yeah, Wolfie, Wolfie has an interesting little motif that he gets. And it's like this really jazzy trumpet that he gets. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. I did not pay attention. I am dumb. Okay, that's fine. It recurs a few times in the score. But I think that it's like, you know, uh, are you familiar with like the concept of like a jazz cat oh i see i'm not but do tell me okay no so it's like it's like somebody who plays jazz could be called a cat like you know it's it, it was it was slang i see so it was in the early to mid so do you think that's the reference they're making he's a jazz he's a literal jazz cat yeah i think it is i think it's a, i think it's a cute little nod all i want to point out here is that wolfie mm-hmm. is voiced by ian james Corlett. Ian we james did Corlett talk is... about that oh did we okay never i think mind. we did but no, no, keep going, keep going. Ian James Corlett. Nothing, it's just that he defends her and then, like, barks at, <laughs> at Midas because he's a doggish cat. Get it? Mm-hmm. He's kind of like, he, uh, not exactly an outcast, but, like, he stands out because he mm-hmm. doesn't do what cats are meant to do. And it makes sense for Erica to have, like, a, a pet like that, to feel, you know, close to a pet like that because she also feels, mm-hmm. like, you know, downtrodden. Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And also, then Seraphina knocks a bucket of fish yes. over Midas's head and hijinks ensues. There's lots of, like, comic noises of, like... It's kind of funny if you think about it because he hits on a barrel and then it sounds like he's hit himself on an anvil. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's like, got the clang, the clang yeah, sound. The clang, the boing sound, and he just <laughs> runs away. What I have written down here is Erica is bee and Wolfie is puppycat. I, I think like that's a very that. interesting comparison. It makes sense in my brain. And um, then uh, Serafina tells Wolfie, quite a big bark you have there, Rover. And then Wolfie <laughs> says, it's uh, uh, it's Wolfie. <coughs> I'm nervous and attracted to you. Uh, not Rover, it's actually Wolfie. And then Serafina is like, well, thank you, Wolfie, not Rover. Wolfie, not Rover. <laughs> yeah, and then she... Serafina's tail, in my eyes, does not look like a cat's tail it it looks no, kind of weird it's weird it looks too much like an appendage to look like a cat tail and it's also pink at the end which makes it even stranger it kind of looks like a tendril more than a mm. tail a tendril with hairs but she she like rubs her tail on wolfie's nose and wolfie gets a sniff of her tail and i don't know if you remember this from cat biology but cats have glands on their bodies uh-huh. That they no, rub Jason, against. I've read Warrior Cats. Okay, um. yeah, good. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm assuming some of them are located on the tail as well. Anyway, uh, and then Seraphina's like, I don't think we ran in the same circles, but perhaps we could change that. Erica and Elise say, there you are at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's another, you know, it's it's further cementing that they are the same person. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally voiced by the same person. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The intro from Just Like You plays here and continues as a motif when Annalise is saying her goodbyes. Yeah, Annalise is like, did I just hear your bark? Did I hear your cat bark? <laughs> I'm doing an American accent. I'm not defaulting to that. <laughs> I think it's because your Canadian is rubbing off of me somehow, but it's turning American Good. at the same time. Anyway, and then Erica says, he has a style all his own. And as Annalise is like stepping in the carriage to leave, she says, one day you must sing for us at the palace so you can see all my wealth and Mm. my privilege. As the carriage goes off, Wolfie is like watching and he has like very starstruck. 
you know, he's very moony over Serafina. Mm-hmm. And his little his little jazz lick recurs here while Erica is talking about how like Cat got his tongue. Ha ha ha. It's a it's a lick. But yeah, so the scene changes. It's night. Annalise is asleep at her desk, and the motif from Cat's Meow is playing in the score. Mm. Because the start of this scene is Serafina chasing the little wooden mouse. Mm. But yeah, so Serafina's like, I may be dainty, but I'm still a feline. And she goes and she chases the mouse. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we get uh, Nick and Knack back. Yes. So Nick and Knack, uh, unless you wanted to continue. Oh, no, I, I was just going to mention the bassoon is here again. But yeah. So we get Nick and Nack back. Uh, they trap Serafina in a wooden box. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nick is like, okay, we can go now. We got the cat. And the Nack's like, no, you idiot. We want the princess. And then Nick's like, then why did we get the cat? And then mm. Nack says, I'll show you. So he starts shaking the box and Serafina starts meowing. I think it's important to note that they haven't, they don't use actual meows from cats. They use Kathleen Barr's meowing, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, she does like an okay job, like with the meowing. It's not horrendous. She's not proficient in the meowing. Listening to a grown adult meow sometimes makes me feel weird. weird. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so the plan here is that Annalise will hear her feline companion meowing for help and will wake up, which I don't know about you, Mina, but if I heard a cat meowing in the distance in the frequency and, you know, not very high volume that Serafina does, I wouldn't exactly run downstairs. I would just, I probably wouldn't even wake up. But Annalise does, maybe she's like a light sleeper and she starts calling out to her cat. And how fortuitous that nobody else in the entire palace got up to go find Serafina. Indeed. Because, I don't know, they were making quite a lot of noise. Annalise was making noise, looking for the cat. You could argue that, I don't know, it's like a Downton Abbey, upstairs, downstairs situation where all the, like, rich, noble people live on, like, the palace area, and then all the servants live beneath the palace or in some other part of the palace that is very far away from their rooms, the rich people's rooms. But still, like, how fortuitous and how interesting that nick and nack can somehow sneak into a palace that is fairly well guarded i want to say that preminger must have like let them in you know what i mean i would agree or like showed them a secret passage or something Mm -hmm. but like if preminger knows a way then why didn't annalise know a way when she wanted to get in after she was kidnapped i mean it's all part of the narrative of like you know Living a pauper's life as a noble, blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, adapting the original where like the prince tried to get in and the guards were like, no, you're not prince, you're filthy. And also the prince is right there. <laughs> anyway, back to you. Annalise, she gets kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she gets big kidnapped. And the scene changes to the cabin in the western forest. Serafina is thrown out the door. By Nack. And uh, she meets a horse named Arve. I don't have anything. I don't have much to say about this part. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have stuff to say. Okay. So Hervé is voiced by Gary Chalk, who is another very prolific voice actor in this film. He played 
the dad in Swan Lake. Right, yeah. He has been in more Barbie films. We will see him again. He's also British. I thought that was interesting. And Interesting. He asks her if she's okay. And Seraphina's like, I've got dirt on my bum. My bum. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. The only thing I have to say is that I'm pretty sure Preminger is riding Gothel's horse <laughs> in this scene. <laughs> yeah. So Annalise is inside a locked room. Seraphina sees Preminger approach and Preminger comes riding in a black horse because he's evil. Because he's evil. And he knocks on the... Do, do the... Jason, do the... the you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, I've thing. already done it. Yeah, okay. And, and then <laughs> Preminger knocks on the door and Nack opens and he's like, Does she know I'm behind this? And uh, I've written down here, Tavros voice. Because that's, that's what it <laughs> sounds like. So he tells Nack, you know, to keep her in the house until the wedding's off. And uh, Nack's like, yeah, sure thing. I'll, I'll just keep her locked up in here. And then Preminger departs. And Serafina's like, I hate that guy. How dare he? And she's like, I need to get inside there to help my princess. So she's like, Mr. Hervé, kick me up there. And the horse is like, yep. I don't know if I can do that. And she's like, sure you can. <laughs> and stabs him with her claws. Yeah. And again, the fact that Hervé is like French and is speaking French in this movie, you can tell this film is Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that's why they added, you know, because they were like, oh, there's French people in Canada. We have to add some CanCon. Yeah, we have to add some CanCon. Je comprends un peu de français. Oui, oui, ha, 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 baguette. I do not know French. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> uh, do you agree that I don't know? Neither do the people on the wiki because they wrote in the transcript that Hervé is just speaking French. He, it says counts to three. It didn't write down the actual French word. <laughs> it, he says un, deux, and then on trois, Serafina claws him. So he doesn't have the chance to say it like properly. So you're telling me that instead of writing en deux, they were like... You know, counting, but in French. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Says something dramatic in French. Do you know that <laughs> meme with like from Spanish soap operas where it's like judges yeah, you yeah. in Spanish and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Shoots you in Spanish. Yeah. So anyway, Serafina falls in the chimney after thanking the horse. And um, because of, you know, it's super dirty, mm -hmm. she's like full of soot and dust and stuff by the time she lands and she's like i'm simply not going to look at myself and she's sad because she's filthy mm -hmm. um well and then the scene mm -hmm. changes because we're back at the castle mm -hmm. with queen genevieve and preminger who saunters evilly toward the queen and the queen is looking for her daughter she's looking for annalise mm -hmm. and as the queen is like inside annalise's room and she's like i haven't seen her all day she wasn't at breakfast mm -hmm. Preminger is like, is that something on her desk, your majesty? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally not evil. Like, Preminger, what do your <laughs> elf eyes see? Like, from, like, <laughs> ten feet away, you spot the letter on her desk. And the desk is not like an empty, featureless desk with one slip of paper on one side. It's got, like, rocks from before. It's got her books. Yeah. It's got her magnifying glass. It's got a bunch of stuff. So, like, I don't know. The queen must be really, really... Really dumb in order to be like yeah I, that's not suspicious the queen's eyesight is really yeah. bad like i think i think the movie did not properly articulate how horrible the queen's eyesight is anyway so it was at this point that when i first watched the film to take down notes that i realized i was like hang on preminger let's see what kind of name that is 
<laughs> so just have like a rant here about you know the anti-semitism in this movie but we've already been through that yeah we've we've spoken about yeah. this before tldr preminger is historically a jewish last name mm -hmm. and the fact that there is a greedy man who is given a jewish name who wants to steal all of the kingdom's gold and marry the pretty aryan princess it's problematic yeah. the uh, it's, it's the second time they've done something anti-Semitic in a Barbie film. You'd think somebody at Mattel would have been like, hey, guys, uh, maybe maybe this isn't a super great look. I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the child labor. I'm sorry, could you speak <laughs> up? Oh, no. Oh, no. Did you say sweatshop? Sweatshop workers? Well, we already have those. I should show you the clip from Twisted where, like, it's a parody musical of Aladdin, mm -hmm. but it's like from the perspective of Jafar, so it's like wicked, but it's called it's called Twisted. And in it, Princess Jasmine is just very, very dumb. And her ladies in waiting are like fanning her and they give her this silk shawl and she's like, What are you doing? Don't you know these are made in sweatshops? And then her lady in waiting is like, Yes, I know, I made it in the royal sweatshop. <laughs> <gasps> wow. Anyway, so the queen, you know, takes the letter and she's like, a letter to me. And then she reads it and she's like, it says she's run away. And at that moment, Preminger does the fakest, most over-the-top, oh yeah. ridiculous, dramatic god. She's like, oh, I just, I, I saw a Tumblr compilation of moments where Preminger was very dramatic and over-the-top and I can't find it again. And I want to see it again because it's ah. great. I'm is it on the blog? I don't know. I, I, it was on my dashboard at some point, so it might have been on the blog. I'm going to try and find it on YouTube after this recording and hopefully link it in the description. If not, then I couldn't find it. But yeah, it's super fake and it's very funny. And the queen is distraught by this development. And as you know, this is happening. Preminger pockets some of the pyrite because he's, mm -hmm. he's stupid and greedy. He's dumb and evil. And he tells the queen that he'll look for Annalise. And this is another um, example of very... Like, this movie, obviously, it's an old movie with regards to, you know, today's standards of animation. Back then, mm -hmm. animation wasn't so refined as it is today. And and we're talking about 3D animation specifically. Yeah, 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 right obviously. Like, sometimes they, the animators put a lot of work into, you know, specific expressions and sometimes not. I mean, obviously, this is also a, mat a matter of, like, time and cost and efficiency because they were pumping out these films once a year and still are. Yeah. So, like... Well, they haven't released a new one since 2017 with Dolphin Magic, but they are making a new one that is set to release later this year. So there's been a, there's been a three-year gap. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. But, yeah, so I'm not sure if this is a sort of, like, they weren't there yet like skill wise or technology wise to put in as much detail as they put in today or if they just couldn't afford to or didn't have the time because they were rushing it but as he says i'll look for her you know i'm sure she couldn't have gone far she kind of does this like i'm not sure how to describe it this not exactly a pout but his mouth kind of falls down in a sort of like is she gonna believe this kind of deal and he's like a Wide-eyed yeah. look. You you have to like see it. I can't really describe it very well. Mm -hmm. But he has this look about him. that's like, yeah, that's not a lie, and definitely, definitely true. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very good expression. I think one of the major failings of the early Barbie movies is that they were trying really hard to walk the line between uh, naturalistic animation and making the characters look like the dolls. Oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there are characters who aren't Barbie and her friends who are allowed to look 
really interesting. Like the silversmith and the baker and Gothel all look very stylized, whereas the Barbie characters always look like the dolls. And I think that there's there's like a there's a discrepancy there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's also because they're trying to like retain Barbie's like iconic look about her. And the most recent films, right? The most recent films that are in the Barbie and Her Sisters series, mm-hmm. those ones are where she looks the most like the dolls because those ones are the ones where it is Barbie and Skipper and Chelsea, da 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 and whatever the fourth sister's mm-hmm. name is. And the four of them are dolls that are sold right now in stores, mm-hmm. right? So Skipper in the movie looking like Skipper the doll is really important. Mm-hmm in those Mm -hmm. films i have one last thing to point out that i noticed during the movie Uh uh-huh i don't know if this is to make characters look less stilted during 3d animation but a lot of the times you will see characters moving their bodies quite animatedly that's probably not a word quite (laughs) vigorously while they're doing like simple things so like they're moving their shoulders they're moving their heads they're moving their bodies the whole torsos i think this is a problem with the mocap animation because it is something a real human does you know the animation for these movies with regards to the mocap like the mocap is captured very well it's executed and choreographed with very precise skill but the models are kind of cheaply made right so it doesn't always look good. Was the entire thing mocapped? Most of it. Really? Yeah. I thought it was just the dancing yeah. sequences. No, most of the film was mocapped, oh. dude. Like you can tell. You can tell. Um parts where Erica or Annalise are like running, especially in the dungeon scene where um Erica is singing to be a princess for prize. Mm. When she gets the keys from the guard and she like runs, you can tell that that was like a motion captured animation. Mm. Yeah. I say, mm, not because I'm agreeing with you, but because I don't know any better. So I'm just like, yeah, she's probably (laughs) right. She probably knows more than me. There are parts of the movie where you can tell it was mocap because of the way that the models move. Mm. It's like a a very specific vibe that they give off. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, but yes, so Ambassador Bismarck, this is an outrage, the most grievous insult. I insist we cancel the wedding if the princess does not return by the end of the day. And Jul- Julian's just there like, what is happening yeah. right now? None of this makes any sense at all. Premin just says, take a look yourself and gives him the letter. And uh, Julian sniffs it. I love Julian so much. Jason, I love I just like he's such a he's such a dork. He's a good good boy and he is a dork. He's a he's such a good good boy. Um so Julian, perhaps I can help you look for her and then the theme of evil is right here. Mm-hmm. And Preminger says, "Why don't you stick to your books, schoolboy? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be fun?" And he like laughs evilly. Which doesn't make off. any sense. Like as an insult, like, "Why don't you stick to your books, schoolboy? Wouldn't that be fun?" And I'm like, "Wait, what how is that funny?" Like it's just Preminger being mean. Yeah, very badly being mean. Uh, yeah, exactly. But then, like, Julian, how many letters has Annalise written to you that you know what her letters smell like? I think it's more like, <laughs> you know the thing you do with a friend where you write an email or a text to someone, and you're like, read it, yeah. tell me if this is good or something, so that your friend can give you their opinion on if it is a good text oh. or a good email. 
I'm imagining something like that. Or maybe Julian just knows Annalise well enough, having spent so much time with yeah. her, that he knows that, you know, she always sends her letters with Rose because, you know, he smells a letter. I just think it's so adorable <laughs> that he knows that. Well, they're in love. Anyway, so the reason why Julian is instantly suspicious and angry is because he smells the letter and he's like, Lilac, where did you get this? And Preminger's just like, at the princess's desk. And Julian does not buy this because Annalise always, you know, sends things with Rose. Okay, so, so before we get into the scene where Julian goes to find Erica to bring her back to the palace to begin the subterfuge, we're going to take mm-hmm. a quick break. So... For us, it's going to be the same day. It's going to be two minutes later. But for you guys, who knows when the next part will come out. <laughs> this has been Put a Shrimp on It. This has been Put a Act Shrimp on It. two of The Act Princess two. and the Pauper. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. We'll be back. We'll be back. Bye. <laughs>